You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'm exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN and beyond. We've talked about obesity on this podcast before. In Episode 7, Dr. Paula Gehrig from the University of North Carolina discussed the many ways obesity can affect women's health, from fertility to pregnancy complications and even increased risk of some gynecologic cancers. That episode, by the way, is recommended listening if you haven't heard it yet. In this episode, we're taking it a step further. Can obesity change our genes? And not just our genes, but our children's, our grandchildren's, our great-grandchildren's? And if it can, what does that mean for a world with ever-climbing obesity rates? I talked to Dr. Kelly Moley, director of the Center for Reproductive Health Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis, to learn more. And stick around after my interview with Dr. Moley for an exciting bonus conversation with the host of The Surgery Set, another great medical podcast from UW-Madison. If you've ever wondered what it's like to be a surgeon, The Surgery Set might be the show for you. Listen to Dr. Jonathan Kohler tell me more about why he wanted to pull back the curtain on surgery with his podcast. So we're joined today by uh, Kelly Moley. Dr. Moley is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Um, She's also the director of the Center for Reproductive Health Sciences and the vice chair of basic and translational research. Um, I want to say welcome and thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Thanks. It's my honor. Um, I am very curious. I have a lot of questions about the special lecture that you just presented at our research day, which was um, called the obesity epidemic. Could could it be an oocyte issue? I had to Google how to pronounce oocyte yesterday. (laughs) Um, But before we move into that, uh, tell me a little bit about what you do at Washington University. So I um, am an MD, uh, did my training in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So I see patients um, part of the time, but most of the time I spend in my basic science research lab where I train graduate students, postdocs, medical students, uh, master's students, and some clinical fellows like um, uh, GYN, OBGYN residents as well as different fellows. So my role is mostly to conduct the experiments that we've proposed and to oversee those people doing the actual experiments. Why did you want to work in reproductive endocrinology? It's a good question. Um, I came into this field, believe it or not, over 30 years ago, and that was right when in vitro fertilization was really becoming, just really starting out. No one really knew much about uh, fertilization and implantation and even early uh, embryo development. And so I, as a medical student at Yale, spent a good part of my um, first and second year of med school starting little projects in this area, looking mostly at maternal type 1 diabetes. At that point in 1986, uh, obesity was not the huge problem in this country as it, as it, was, it is now. And so type 1 diabetes was the more common type of endocrine disorder and um, started looking at the effects of hyperglycemia on early embryo development. Diabetes is when your sugar levels are high, also known as hyperglycemia. So um, that kind of launched me in kind of learning about both mouse and animal models and how that pertained to human disease. And really my interests were mostly because of the fun and excitement of IVF and how it was just being launched and sort of introduced at that time in my life. And that's really was has been a great, a great direction to go. 
I also heard today you just stepped into kind of a leadership role at the March of Dimes. Yes, yes. <laughs> As of May 15th um, of this year, I was uh, named the senior vice president and the chief scientific officer of the March of Dimes. So, uh, you know, many people know the March of Dimes as being um, a real advocate for patients and children and mostly maternal infant poor outcomes. <clears throat> but they also have a large research foundation that funds um, millions of dollars of grants every year uh, across around the world looking at specific childhood diseases and maternal uh, uh, health issues re relating and leading to abnormal kid offspring outcomes. So it's a great, a great job, a great opportunity. So yes, I will be probably stepping away from this research myself in the next year, over the next year, but I have lots of great um, I don't want to call them disciples, but people around, around the country who have trained with me in this area of transgenerational effects that I think will keep this uh, engine going. Well, I'm really glad we got to talk with you before you kind of scaled your work back a little bit. Yeah. Um, so you just presented a special lecture for our UW Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, our department research day. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what you covered in your lecture? Yeah. So... The sort of the theme of my work and the lecture revolves around developmental origins of human diseases. And this is a theory that was um, was introduced probably in the late or early 90s by a uh, medical epidemiologist named David Barker. So he called this the Barker hypothesis, aptly named. And what he, he discovered was that um, the offspring of uh, women who were born during the Nazi invasion of the Netherlands, the winter of 1944 and 1945, he found that their offspring, depending on when in gestation they were exposed to this famine, ended up with children who were born intrauterine growth restricted. And then as they aged 50 years later, ended up with hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, kind of this constellation of metabolic syndrome. Um, and this seemed to be quite interesting, quite um, profound. Uh, and so he then um, sort of started this rally around this theme, looking at sort of gestational exposures and how that affects long-term health in the offspring. Since that time, many people, including myself, have even started looking earlier than uh, than gestation and sort of in this pre-implantation period and early, um, even before fertilization stage. And so my research really focused on the effects of maternal diet on the um, oocyte itself. Now, even though Barker's study was all looking at uh, nutritionally restricted people, in the last 30 years, it's been clear that not only is it nutritionally restricted, but also overnutrition exposure leads to the same, interestingly, the same phenotype of being born um, with this predisposition to develop uh, sort of a type 2 diabetes, obesity, cardiometabolic syndrome pattern, all different flavors of that. But um, so this work really uh, tried to um, uh, test the hypothesis that that it's the oocyte that's being affected by the diet that then carries this sort of bad phenotype or bad um, mitochondria. Mitochondria are your powerhouses of your cells. They create all the um, energy that and create the energy that you um, generate by burning uh, 
carbohydrates and different fuels your body has. So what it appears is that the diet is affecting the functioning mitochondria in the oocyte. And why is that important? Well, your oocytes contain all the mitochondria that are going to be carried over in your, your offspring. So all of the mitochondria you have in your body were from your mom. You don't have any from your dad. And um, so that, that, that then makes it an attractive model because if there is an effect on the mom that's carried over for generations, it could potentially be the mitochondria. And so that's really the, the gist of our work, at least what sort of framed it. What got you interested in this line of inquiry? What uh, kind of piqued your interest in this area? You know, I, ever since medical school at Yale, I studied sort of um, maternal health conditions and their effects on, on embryos and offspring. So I think that has always been an interest of mine. And I guess it stems back to when I was in high school. I, I did, um, I, well, more college, I guess, not high school. I did research in, uh, at Pfizer Pharmaceutical. My dad was the, um, worked there. And they were looking at the effects of type 1 diabetes on uh, cataract formation in lenses, in eyes. And I really like this idea of, of you know, an external carbohydrate or, or a substance that's taken up in your, in this case, it was just produced or not metabolized correctly in diabetes, and how that affected different cellular structures. But I think really the transgenerational part of it and looking at generations has become more of an interest as we see this um, just global problem of obesity. And could there be an explanation, perhaps, I don't want to blame everything on the mom because it's not all mom's fault, but on the environment and, and sort of what we're doing to our bodies. Can you walk me through a little bit um, what you mean by transgenerational? Mm -hmm. So um, I'll take it back for a second to Barker's study that you talked about. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like um, the Originally, a mother was pregnant and experienced this very uh, intense famine, like huge calorie restriction. I think in your presentation you said between 400 and 800 a day kind yes. of limitation. Um, what generation after that were they still seeing the effects? Well, because it's humans, it's difficult. I mean, you think about it; those very long. right, right, <laughs> and um, and 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 I think those studies are being done. There's a big. Uh, research group actually in the Netherlands that's following all these children. They haven't published a lot of papers. There's some that are looking at outcomes in those. Um, his was more of an intergenerational, which is just the one generation. And I think these further studies are looking at the second and third generations. Transgenerational is to be a purist means that you've had an effect um, that in the ma mother or the, or the father, if you're looking at a paternally inherited problem, that is carried over not only in the daughter or the son, but also the granddaughter and the grandson. But to make it actually transgenerational, it has to be the third generation. Okay. So that's kind of the difference. And that if you think about it, that very first fetus inside a mom, you're going to affect that fetus's um, own germ cells, which would then be, the, be what, what is then used to make that next generation. So it could all be because of just the maternal exposure. Whereas if you look at the third generation, that generation never saw any um, ex maternal exposure. But if there's a change there, then you know it's been carried on. So basically transgenerational means that something has happened that is potentially um, carried on for many generations beyond three. So you worked um, largely in a mouse model, uh, mm -hmm. which makes sense because the generations can happen so much more quickly. Um, tell me a little bit about your methods. Yeah. So... We used a standard um, 
a laboratory mouse that's an inbred, very specific. Inbred means that we know everything that's in that genome. There's no variation like there is in humans, so it's not very human-like. However, that allows for less variability among mice and gives us cleaner data and, and makes it less difficult for us to generate the data and not having to use quite the same number of mice as we would if they were not inbred. So the inbred mice are fed a high-fat, high-sugar diet. And this diet consists of um, uh, 50, I'm sorry, 36% um, fat by calories and 6% uh, uh, fructose and sucrose. So sucrose is basically a disaccharide that has both glucose and fructose in it. So that, that dose of fructose was twice as high as the control diet, and the amount of fat was seven times as high in the, um, the high-fat, high-sugar diet. So it was the equivalent of you know, a McDonald's hamburger or McDonald's meal, and we fed that to the mice for um, six to eight weeks, which is the equivalent of about six to eight years. So at the end of this, these, these mice were obese. They were... Um, uh, they had high cholesterol levels, they had high fat levels, uh, fatty, uh, fatty acid levels, and they had fasting glucose and insulin levels that suggested both insulin resistance and uh, beta cell dis dysfunction. So they were quite sick animals, and then we basically um, mated those animals to control males that were on a regular diet and then looked at their offspring. That was our first set, was just looking at the model um, of the first generation. Then we use that second, gener that first generation to then mate with control mice and look at the third generation and then similarly uh, forward. So it's a mouse model where the mother has been fed the diet but all the offspring from that point on after weaning are fed a regular diet and all the males that are used to mate are fed a regular diet. Okay. Um, so what did you start to find, I guess, as the, um, the generations continued to develop? Yeah. Uh, did they have some of the conditions that you would expect? Yeah. So, so the initial finding that we had in the, in, the mo in the mothers at the very beginning was that their oocytes appeared to have been specifically targeted um, uh, by this diet. And when I say targeted, I mean those were probably the most profound differences that we found in other tissues. And specifically, they seem to accumulate a large amount of reactive oxygen species, which are bad, as you can imagine. They also had large amounts of lipid droplets within those oocytes. They also just, uh, exhibited very abnormal appearing mitochondria. So mitochondria you can only see by electron microscopy at, the, at a level. So these were very high-powered uh, electron micrographs that we looked at, and we could clearly see significant morphologic changes by just eight weeks, six to eight weeks on this diet. And those changes were um, things like uh, the mitochondria were more swollen. They had much more uh, vacuolar space within them. They had disarrayed Christi formation. Those are the, the apparatus in the, micro, in the mitochondria that allows you to, to um, generate electrons in the electron transport chain. So they were really sick appearing mitochondria. Um, so that's really what led us to this idea that perhaps it really is the, the, the um, insult on the mitochondria in the oocytes that is, um, is, is the mechanism responsible for this. Now, those mice, incidentally, um, uh, 
did have um, some problems mating, but we mated them at an early enough age that we were able to get offspring. And then in the second generation, or I'm sorry, in the first generation, their daughters, we looked at the same effect in the oocytes first to see if we had that same pattern of um, mitochondrial morphology, mitochondrial metabolism, and some of the other things we looked at. And we found in that, in that first generation that indeed the female mice offspring had the same abnormalities in their oocytes, which led us to say, well, if this is happening in the oocyte, it should be in every other cell in the body since that would make, mean it was germline. So at that point, we then investigated the muscle, the skeletal muscle, because we know there's a large amount of mitochondria in skeletal muscle. And we saw the same exact phenotype or, or uh, manifestation of a mitochondrial dysfunction in the skeletal muscle. We also looked at the fat tissue and also at um, the germ cells, as I said, the oocytes in that mouse. We then mated that, that daughter with a normal male and again looked at their offspring and again, again looked not only at the oocytes but also at the skeletal muscle and the adipose or fat tissue. Again, we saw the same abnormality. And finally, the third generation, again, we, um, we tested them not only for mitochondrial uh, morphologic changes, but also function. And we used functional tests where we could take a piece of muscle out and put it in a culture and then measure its ability to oxidize glucose and other substrates in order to generate ATP. And that whole apparatus, the electron transport chain, appeared to be impaired, again, in all three generations of these mice. Did you also, um, I'm remembering from your slides uh, look a little bit at cardiovascular tissue? Right. So the big, um, one of the most remarkable um, manifestations, at least in the Barker hypothesis, was the fact that the cardiovascular disease appeared to be trans or to be intergenerational. So that's really why we chose to look at the heart. Also, the heart has the highest um, number, the heart cells have the highest number of mitochondria of any cell in the body. So we figured if there was going to be a problem with mitochondria, that's the tissue we should look at. So we did. We looked at the heart. First, again, we looked at the heart muscle by um, uh, electron microscopy and found that the organization of the entire um, cardiac muscle was was impaired because of this abnormal mitochondrial pattern. So, I, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, but, the, but what you see is instead of the normal striations that you see in a muscle, the muscle st structure is all messed up with, with sort of chaotic patterns of mitochondria throughout the muscle tissue. Um, yeah, it looked kind of lumpy. Right. Um, not as linear and right. grid-like as the other, as the control side. Exactly. Yeah. As you maybe recall from a long time ago, your pictures of muscles, you've got the, the sarcomeres and they're lined up and everything is sort of perfectly arranged so that the myosin and all the chains can contract and muscles can work. So this appeared that this um, mitochondrial defect was really impairing the ability of that muscle to contract. And indeed, we did echocardiograms, so ultrasounds on the hearts of these mice. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but we were able to show that they were not able to contract as well. And as a result, they weren't able to pump blood to all the organs of the mouse, um, of the mouse body. And that was a big problem. And it looks, at least in our initial studies, as we age these mice, they tend to die of cardiovascular um, failure, basically heart failure, at a faster rate. <clears throat> and that's, uh, yeah, we're, we're, again, you know, 
their, their reproductive life is pretty quick and we can get a lot of generations out. Looking at cardiovascular disease takes a lifetime of a mouse, which is about a year, so it takes a little bit longer, but it appears that um, these mice will have significant uh, hypertension, um, hypertrophy of the heart, so an extra size in the heart, leading to all kinds of cardiovascular problems. So what do you think is happening? Why, um, why is this mother's excess or overnutrition, this mother's overnutrition changing that much about her daughter's yeah. um, germline, I guess? <clears throat> right, exactly. So I think that, you know, as I said, your mitochondria that you get are all from your mom. And so I think that um, the diet um, for reasons that are probably related to excess um, fructose. It's my gut feeling, um, and there's some scientific data to back it up, that the fructose is what's causing this problem. I don't know, about the 1970s is when the whole, if you look at the curves of obesity in this country, everything sort of zero, time zero was like 72, and everything from there just sort of escalated in this hyperbole of obesity. About that same time is when, um, I don't know, you guys are you're probably way before you were born, but we had this huge embargo where we weren't able to um, ship our corn to the uh, what was then the USSR. And so at that point, corn would need, was needed to be used because we were producing a lot of it in this country, and they started push putting corn syrup and fructose, which is basic corn syrup is just heavy-duty fructose, into everything that we eat, from bread to cereals to cookies and, and any kind of sweetener. It's a very potent sweetener and without really thinking of the consequences. But unfortunately, fructose is much different than glucose. It doesn't go through the same metabolic pathways, and instead it goes directly to making fat. So basically, I think, I mean, this is, this is way out there, but I think, you know, that the parallel curves of our obesity in this country and the use of fructose in our food, I think, is really something we can't ignore. And that's why uh, our model in this mouse is, is pretty profound. So, you know, I'm, I'm working out the studies now to really look specifically, but I think there is a, uh, an effect of high fructose that appears to be damaging the oocytes, and specifically the oocyte mitochondria. And so when that, wom when that woman's oocyte then gets fertilized, probably the majority of those go on to become miscarriages, which is what we see in, in, in humans, is you have a higher rate of, of uh, miscarriages when you're obese. But the other 50% go on to produce offspring, and those offspring, my hypothesis is, have this mitochondrial defect in every single tissue of the body. Because basically the mitochondria you got from your mom are replicated when you're a little embryo, and then they're, they're sort of tallied up and sent to every single tissue that's going to make your, your cells. And those tissues then go on to make a heart, a liver, you know, the, your, your skin, your brain. And if there's a slight defect in that that cell in that particular organ, there's going to be a type of organ failure that's going to occur with life and lifelong. So I think that it's it's an effect that started, you know, years ago. Um, you know, I don't know how many people my age, at least, had any knew anybody that was obese. Um, whereas now, there's many, many more children that are being born to obese patients. And I think this is going to really, you know. Um, significantly impact our not only social life, social uh, um, sort of status, but also our economic status in this, in this country. So, yeah, on a previous episode of this, we even discussed with um, another external lecturer just about 
40% of adults in Wisconsin are obese, and it's sort of a trend that's only headed upwards, which is kind of, yeah, you know, kind of terrifying. Um, and, and from coming from St. Louis, I can tell you, too, about 60% of our patients, at least in our clinic population, right. are, um, are obese. Yeah. We have talked about um, passing sort of from mother to daughter, uh, this mitochondrial issue. Uh, is it limited only to the female line? No, that's a great question, and that kind of came to the, the conclusion of my, of my talk. Unfortunately, this is a bigger problem than just maternal passage. It's the maternal passage originally, but then basically you're born with this nuclear DNA abnormality that could potentially be passed by male or female, and that's what we showed. I didn't show that data today, but we have a paternal um, lineage line. So we take the, the male child from the original mother with the high fat, high sugar diet and look at his offspring. And those offspring have the same exact phenotype as we saw with the female lineage. So that really points to some nuclear epigenetic phenomenon. And this is where the word epigenetics comes in. Yeah. Tell yeah. me about that. <laughs> yeah. What is epigenetics? So epigenetics is a um, DNA modification that is not the typical mutation that you see with Mendelian, you know, Mendel and his little um, corn plants looking at crossing, you know, dominant and uh, recessive genes. This is a change that occurs usually due to an environmental factor, in this case diet, that changes the ability of that DNA to undergo transcription, being made into mRNA and being made into a protein. And so it either negatively makes it, so impacts it by downregulating expression of that gene, or it could potentially also cause an upregulation of some gene. Both have been seen. So, and, and then that will be a permanent heritable change, not just something that's temporary. So we think that that's what's happening. Now, a lot of genes, for those experts out there in the, in the, in the field, um, we think that everything gets erased um, at the time of conception, and all your genes are erased, and then some of those markings go back on as far as epigenetic modifications. But as we're finding now, and most of these are metabolic genes, those epigenetic changes are occurring and not being erased. So these are things that we think will carry on. Um, so epigenetics is an exploding field, and I think it's another level of regulation of gene expression that we didn't know about. Um, and I think this pattern of maternal over and under nutrition is one that's affecting the epigenetics of, of, our, of our genomic DNA and perhaps our mitochondrial DNA too. So I guess what I really want to ask is what, what's next, I guess. If these um, mitochondrial changes are inherited and um, from generation to generation to generation can continue to be passed down. That sounds kind of challenging to me, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think it's it's um, it's a little sad, a little depressing. Um, I think probably the target, and I didn't tell you about this before, but we did try to reverse these effects with both diet reversal and exercise in the mouse model and did not see any um, significant reversal of these effects, um, at least at the oocyte level. We haven't gone on to look at other tissues. So I think what we really need to target is the offspring and trying to find ways to improve their mitochondrial function. That could either be with a drug or some kind of pharmacologic agent or um, getting them on better exercise patterns. You know, we have to get our kids to get off the couch and, and kind of get up and, and go out and play games like I used to all day long and not really 
um, have also the availability of all the food stuff that we have now as well. And whether that be policy changes or you know better habits in maternal and in parenting, it's a it's going to be a tough sell. But I think that's really the key is targeting. I think unfortunately the moms. Um, damage is probably going to be done from the time that they're born. Um, but with the offspring, we can at least start healthier life patterns and, and better uh, programs for kids. Okay. Well, at least a little bit optimistic. Yes. Then. <laughs> okay. um, I just want to say again, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm really excited to introduce our listeners to another great podcast out of the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Since late 2016 or so, our colleagues in the UW-Madison Department of Surgery have produced The Surgery Set, and I have a few questions today for the host of The Surgery Set, Dr. Jonathan Kohler. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So tell me a little bit about your day job. What do you do when you're not hosting a podcast? So I'm one of the pediatric general surgeons here, so I operate on uh, patients aged zero to uh, 18 or so, and we do a whole range of operations. So they say pediatric surgery is sort of the, the last of the true general surgeries. So we're in the abdomen, we're in the chest, we're doing all sorts of uh, stuff on little newborns and then 18-year-olds, and it's, it's really nice and an amazing varied profession. I assume that keeps you plenty busy, but you still wanted to start a podcast. Why did you want to be a host of a podcast? I just, I love talking about medicine. Um, I actually got a master's degree in health communication uh, when I was in residency. I grew up doing theater and then I was a journalist uh, before I went to medical school. And uh, it's always fascinating to me how we talk about surgery and, and how pe people learn about what surgery is, right? And um, so much, I think, of how we learn about surgery is from people who are not doctors, right? We learn about it from television writers. We learn about it from our Uncle Larry who went in for a colon operation. Um, but it's rare to hear from doctors sort of talking, not just to you about like why you're in the office, but what it is to be a doctor what it and what it, what it means to be a surgeon specifically and how surgeons and surgery have, have evolved and where we're headed. Who do you hope is listening? Who do you hope is on the other end of the surgery set? We really want the surgery set to be for anyone who has a real interest in surgery. Um, and maybe not every episode is going to scratch everybody's itch on surgery, but uh, we, we really cover the gamut. I mean, we cover uh, basic science and sort of what are, what's happening in the lab around surgical problems. And then we talk about the culture of surgery and we talk about the educational theory that goes into training a surgeon. Um, so we're all over the map in terms of what's interesting uh, to us, and um, and we hope that our listeners um, will find something that they really enjoy. Um, I think a lot of the people who listen to our, our show are medical students and residents, trainees, um, and it is great for them. But um, it also, I you know, my parents are both lawyers and say that they enjoy it too, and, and I think they're not just being nice. So I think it's <laughs> I think there really is something there for anyone who who has a real interest in how. Uh, the profession of medicine works, um, and in the sort of technical details of how we do it. So what can we expect out of a typical episode? What's the format like, and who are you talking to? So the surgery set comes out every two weeks, um, and it's uh, a real range of people that we talk to. We speak to most of our Grand Rounds speakers, the people who come in from out of town to present to the Department of Surgery. We use their Grand Rounds talk, which is like an hour long, and 
Um, and we use that as a stepping off point to do an interview that usually it lasts about 20 minutes um, and covers maybe what they talked about, but often gets off into interesting and exciting new tangents that have nothing to do with what they were sort of brought in to speak about. We'll also talk to members of our faculty um, usually around the time that their people are doing interesting things, hosting a conference or doing a training, um, or if someone has a really interesting paper that comes out, um, we'll talk to them about that and get their sort of inside scoop. Uh, so for me, it's been a fantastic way to meet you know, my neighbors in the office, um, as well as meeting you know, world-famous surgeons who come into Madison from all over the world to talk to us here. You're about 50 episodes in. I've been doing this since 2016. So uh, if someone wanted to start listening, where should they start? What are some of your favorite interviews for the surgery set? I mean, we've done such a wide range and such an interesting uh, palette of people in, in across surgical disciplines. It is actually hard for me to pick a favorite, but I think actually episode one, I really loved. We talked to Josh Mesrich, who's one of our transplant surgeons here, and he's just an incredibly charismatic guy. And I think he sort of lets you in not only into sort of the finer points of some of the transplant surgery science that he does, but just sort of shows you that surgery can be fun and funny. Um, so that it was a, a big favorite. Um, more recently, uh, we are um, we've done a series on uh, women in surgery. Uh, so we talked to a UW alum, um, Heather Logie, uh, who's a surgery trainee, and to Susan Pitt, who's one of our attendings here. Um, Heather started the hashtag I look like a surgeon movement or was one of several surgeons who was part of that. Um, and then Susan Pitt took that New Yorker cover that was sort of famous of four surgeons looking down and turned that into a uh, a worldwide movement of women surgeons taking pictures of themselves in that sort of same pose. Um, and just talking to them about how they have sort of created this movement and really created a conversation around the role of women in surgery um, and then created these visuals around it in a way that has, you know, garnered literally billions of hits on Twitter um, was really fascinating and, and inspiring to me. Um, and then uh, more recently, you know, I, we did a, an interview with uh, Robert Redfield, who's one of our transplant surgeons, um, who talks about something called loin pain hematuria syndrome, which I had never heard of. I'd never read about it. I'd never knew any. I did not know it existed until I walked in the room. Um, and since then, I, I sort of feel like I see it everywhere. So I, it just like that has expanded my own view of surgery. And like I, you sort of think like, okay, I've heard of all the diseases at this point in my career. And absolutely not. Um, so just the, I think... Every episode has something sort of special, but those those three really, I think, stand out in my mind. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. I just have one more question. Where can we find your podcast? Great. Well, The Surgery Set is available everywhere. Quality podcasts are found. Um, so we're, we stream uh, off of our website, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. And uh, there you'll also find links to iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean and Overcast, all of the usual suspects for a podcast, podcast streaming. So um, we can find us anywhere. The, the key thing to know, though, surgery set, that's two T's, set, S-E-T-T. -T. It's the home of a badger, something that apparently, if you're born in Wisconsin, you just know. But I didn't learn until I got here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is great. On the next Women's Health Cast, I'll be joined by Ahmed Al-Niyami. 
Dr. Alniyami is a gynecologic oncologist in the UW Department of OBGYN, and he's also leading efforts in the department to improve patient outcomes after surgery. He'll tell us about how he helps patients get ready for major surgeries, the most common post-surgical complications, and what he recommends to help patients recover faster. Women's HealthCast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's HealthCast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WISCOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening.